Hey, it's Brian Rosen again from our podcast, Happy Hour Live with Brian Rosen, where we are neither live and we are not an hour. So you've got that going for you. We have Renato Reyes with us today from the Deutsch Family Wines and Spirits. I first met Renato, what, two years ago, about? Yeah, thereabouts. Yeah, and I reached out to the CEO of Deutsch and I said, I want to talk about M&A. I want to talk about uh, the market. I want to talk about wine, spirit, beer, and how you see it. And he's like, you can talk to me or you can talk to my genius friend, my guy, my teammate, Renato. And we started a friendship at that point, And here we are today. So thank you for coming on. Glad to be here. And uh, good afternoon to you and to everybody. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, thank you for that. And I guess, tell me how you, how you came to be where you are at Deutsch. You know, a lot of people in the space have grown up in the space, me included, you know, from a retailer to, a, to selling two businesses in the space and now running a, an equity firm and other things. And so how did you get to the seat? But that's, that's a long story, so I'll try to keep it brief. I started out my career in CPG at a company called Procter & Gamble and eventually found my way into Alcbev through Gallo. And Deutsch is actually the third wine and spirit or alcohol beverage company that I've come to work for. And it's just amazing. It, it's the industry that attracted me to it. I first started out at Deutsch as the CMO, and now I'm in this role as the chief strategy and the growth officer. And it's one of the most dynamic industries that you could be in. When people talk about Gallo, my knowledge of Gallo is the red tie, the white shirt, buttoned up like crazy, and training, 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 training. Is that, is that you? Sometimes it's a blue tie, or, or it's a blue shirt and a yellow tie. That's also a good combination. Um, I, well, I came in through the marketing department at Gallo. So not quite the sales culture, but the discipline and the training culture at Gallo actually pervades all of their functions. It's an extremely well-run company. I wouldn't trade my experience there for anything. Yeah, in my role at BevStrat, we, we like Gallo people because they follow, well, this is going to sound not great, but they, they, not they follow rules, but they're very regimented and they have a way of selling. And Gallo was one of the first businesses out there, you know, Renato, and you know this and some of our listeners may as well, Gallo, they used sales training as the cornerstone for selling their brands. So other companies, and there are too many to name, would sell with the end goal in mind, right? They would, they would sell, we need cases sold. And Gallo said, if we do the steps leading up, we'll sell the cases de facto. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's amazing the sales processes that they put there in place. The steps to the sales call, the Sierra selling format, five sales fundamentals that every sales professional needs to be concerned with. I mean, there's, there's quite a bit of rigor in the way that they've built their selling culture to the point that I think it's their competitive advantage, right? Very few people, very, very few. Actually, I don't think anyone in the industry can hold uh, a candle to Gallo. Uh, I remember when I was leaving Procter, which was a marketing-driven company, my boss said to me, he said, so you're going to leave us to join the greatest sales company on earth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said, yeah. Because I love alcohol. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so you, you worked at Gallo for a spell. You're at Deutsch now. Is Deutsch, 
like what if I would say what are the pillars of Deutsch family, right? Not the M&A piece or not the gro chief growth piece, but how does Deutsch in the market, how, how are they perceived and how are they want to be perceived? Yeah, I mean, I'd say um, we're a unique company. We were founded in 1981 by Bill Deutsch. He was employee number one. We're actually celebrating our 40th anniversary this year. And the company was originally a pure regional agency house. So we didn't own any, any brands. Bill saw an opportunity at the time to help family companies, predominantly from France, to do business in the United States. And every relationship we had at the time was an agency relationship where we basically just represented sales and marketing in the United States. Shortly thereafter, Peter joined the company and worked the streets, worked as a salesperson for many years. And those two men really began a journey that was marked with some pretty incredible transformational flashpoints. It's, it's amazing the number of times these guys got lucky. What are, what, what are some of those flashpoints? I know Josh Cabernet will come up in this piece. Yeah, I mean, the, the first million case French brand, Beaujolais Nouveau, Yellowtail, the rise of Josh Sellers, building a spirits business. The gentlemen have really built a company and a culture, I think, that positions itself well to win. And we do it slowly. You know, today we're a mid-sized company. We're about $900 million in size, annual revenue. But we're also the fourth largest wine company behind only Gallo Constellation and the wine group. I think what really sets us apart is there's that family culture that is still rooted in the two gentlemen who built it. Most family companies this size are several generations in. We're still with the original folks who built the company. And we work with them day to day. I think that makes us unique. And one thing that I like to say to folks that we potentially partner is with professional partners. You know, everything about what we do is built on partnering with someone else. Yeah. You know, it's funny because you are mentioning names that, for lack of a better word, are kind of standards, right? I think about like on Sirius XM jazz standards. Those are names we all know. When you listen to, to satellite radio and there's a bunch of songs that you always know. It, the channel's called Jazz Standards. So when I, you talk about Nouveau Bougelet, and you talk about Josh, and you talk about Yellowtail, those are monsters, monsters. So how our listeners are the guy selling 5,000 cases in Memphis, Tennessee, or the person who is starting a spirit company or a wine company in Napa Valley, but Paso Robles. So it's not quite Napa, and it's not quite Sonoma or Calistoga, it's Paso, which is good, but not great. It's not on everyone's kind of radar. So these people that start brands, what advice can you give them that Yellowtail doesn't need or Josh doesn't need or Nouveau Bougelet doesn't need? Wow. I mean, that's a, that's a big question, right? It, it's funny. If you think about innovation in the wine space, new brand creation, could you take a guess on how many brands will make a million dollars of contribution margin after the third year? Zero. Well, no, some obviously do. 5%. Uh, 5%. One in 200. Yeah, so 0.5%. Yeah, it's, it's just incredible, right? The, the success rate is pretty daunting. It's tough to get a brand from mm -hmm. case one and to build it into something huge. There's a lot of serendipity that comes into play, a lot of luck that comes into play. The, the best advice I could give folks who are trying to go down this path is keep the consumer on the forefront. 
right? These brands that you've seen succeed that have beat those odds are those brands that really meet consumer needs better than their competition did. And some of them happen to it accidentally, but almost 100% of the time you see a very passionate entrepreneur owner who just really believes in the product. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. So let's go back to that. So one in 200 at a million dollars in contribution margin to the brand, correct? Yeah. And, and the rest kind of disappear. Disappear. But, you know, it's funny. I, th there's 50,000 brands roughly registered for Cola or TTB. There's 500 brands that are on constant rotation at distributors, meaning account for majority of the skew velocity. So you've got this delta of 49,000 and change of brands trying to get in that only make up 10 or 15% of the market. And so right out of the gate, brands are kind of toast. And every, look, it, I'm of the ilk, you know, through Bavstrat, we meet a ton of entrepreneurs. We need, need a ton of what, you know, my wife would call brand forepreneurs, people that are, you know, entrepreneurs for brands. You can't steal that, by the way. I see you smiling. Don't steal that. And <laughs> the failure rate is incredibly high. So it begs the question, what about our business? What about our industry attracts people? Because people say, oh, I go to bars every day. There's vodka on the shelf. I'll make the vodka. You know, so I, I'm curious, you operate at a, at a very high level. Deutsch operates at a very high level. I see brands more in the zero to 15,000 case range. You see brands, you know, in that delta between 15,000 and half a million or 200,000 or whatever it is. So they've already made their mistakes. They've fucked up already. You know, they've already taken a couple wrong turns before they finally found the right path. I get them when they're about to make the wrong turn, which is why my hair is so long. So I, I guess I ask you, what do you think about our business attracts people where the failure rate is over 99%? I'd probably say part of it is the reason why the failure rate is so high. Barrier to entry is relatively low, right? right. It's not that hard to, to get into the wine or spirit business if you can subcontract manufacture through someone else. Yeah. And if you think about just how fun the industry is, right? It's very experiential that really is all of us can probably relate to. I was talking to a guy the other day and I asked him, I said, what do you think makes these entrepreneurial brands so successful? And, you know, obviously there are a million reasons why. One of the reasons he thought of that it spoke to me, he said, these guys are their, tar their own target consumer. Yeah, of course. Right. Yeah. So you, you think about somebody who's obsessed with a consumer these entrepreneurs are kind of obsessed with the consumer. Now, they may be marketing to themselves, unknowingly marketing to everyone else, but they're tailoring everything so passionately against a need that really exists for themselves. And I think, you know, that, that dynamic inspires people to create something. Yeah, and if I could give one piece of advice to, to anyone who wants to make a brand, and I get this all the time, is... If you're making a brand for yourself, you'll have an audience of one. You have to make a brand for the general public. And so we see all the time in any, any of my kind of the windshields I look through, you know, hey, I love coffee flavored tequila with mint and juniper. You know, an entrepreneur or brand entrepreneur would say this. And the reality is, great, sir or ma'am, you're the only one who loves it. So if you're going to put a hundred or $200,000 from your 401k into a distillery contract and raw materials and some sort of route to market plan for that kind of brand, 
that audience doesn't exist. It exists in your house. And the most successful brand entrepreneurs I've ever met, and I know you know a lot of passionate people, are people that make brands not for themselves, but for the general public. And I'd say to them, my wife's a vegetarian. And she would say, how can we go to Morton's, right? Which is a, a national chain. How can we go to Morton's? I don't eat meat. I have news for you, Aaron. The rest of the world does. You know, the majority does. So that's why Morton exists. So making this micro brand for your own palate really is the first step towards failure. You know, so you really have to make something for the aggregate. And so it's just interesting to me. And, and, and God love the passion, right? And, and love the, the excitement around creating. And I've got, you know, I, I get emails all day, as you do, that I want to be in Costco. I, I, I want to build this. Yeah, I mean, that's their, that's their first sale. I want Costco. Or I want a, a $300 million valuation at exit. You know, exactly. You almost joked. And okay, well, what do you do? How are you changing the world? I mean, I know you see it. You have to see it, right? Am I crazy here? Yeah, no, I think it's, it, that's funny. That's the first trap that they fall into, right? They think that they as themselves as consumers represent more than one. And some do. In, in some cases, some do. They get lucky. Um, their, their bet was right. And they actually, through marketing through their own lens, are able to reach out to a bunch of different people. I agree with you. Who got lucky? Who do you think is lucky? Who do you think bet different, white claw aside, who do you think bet different and won? Bet different in what sense? Bet different in the sense that there was blue ocean out there that no one saw but them and they created a, you know, a 100,000 case seller out of that. I'd say John Casella. I just just think about the advent of what they called at the time critter wines. Yeah. But really it was just uh right, it, it was the concept was we're gonna make wine really simple and approachable and we're gonna have really great liquid behind it. And make and, it affordable. Make it affordable. Yeah, super affordable. Yeah. So I, I you know, the stories that Bill would tell about the advent of Yellowtail, you know, they had a partnership with the Casella family. They had already had one failed venture. It was a brand called Karamar that did not do well in the United States. This was their second stab at it. They made up for it, for sure. <laughs> for sure. Like in a year, right? In a year, it was a million cases. But very few people at the time thought that Yellowtail would catch on. One of them was Peter Deutsch. He looked at it and he said, Dad, I think there's something here. We should give yeah. this a shot. And, you know, they thought it would be like a 15,000 case order. And a year later, it's a million cases. Just because it, 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 took, it took the world by storm. And nobody would have guessed it. And no, nobody would have bet on Yellowtail becoming an 8 million case brand at the time. And now globally, I think it's probably close to 20 million. You know what it did, though, de facto, one of those like unintended consequences is it hurt other Australian exports at a higher price point. Because the, the American consumer, and I, I, at Bevstrat, we carried one of them for a year, a high-end, well-made Pinot, Chard, Cab. Yara Yara. And people wouldn't buy it as easily because, well, why do I need to spend $50 for an Australian Cabernet when I can get a jug of Yellowtail for $9.99? Yeah. And I don't know if, uh, you know, I, I hear that a lot. I wonder if somebody actually did the research. If Yellowtail had never existed, that was a tiny segment. Australia was tiny back then. If anything, yeah. Yellow, Yellowtail put Australia on the map. And especially for the wine, for the discerning wine consumer, I think they can tease out quality and they know that there's 
great stuff that's being made out of the various different climates in Australia that they, they can pick out a great bottle. I wonder if you did the research, if the size of the premium Australian segment today is larger than it would have been had Yellowtail not existed. I don't know the answer. I suspect that it would either be larger today or roughly the same size. Yeah, but uh, would you, is Yellowtail more of a pin drop in Australia than Penfolds? No, Yellowtail, oh, you mean the market that Yellowtail has in Australia itself? Not the, not the size, but the brand recognition. I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm biased because I'm- It's I've been pretty well known. Yeah. yeah, maybe I'm biased because I see Penfolds at, you know, at, at, at $30 a bottle and, and Yellowtail, and they're different audiences, right? I mean, Yellowtail, the 1.5 liter of Yellowtail is a whole different animal than a and a, a 750 of Leventine Hill Cabernet. Why do you think Josh is so successful, Josh Cabernet? Oh, Josh. I mean, that one's just, um, it's a brand that really hits on all cylinders. You know, if you look at Josh, uh, you've got great liquid. You've got great packaging. You've got a great name, super approachable name. You've got a brand that makes you feel like there's something special. You know, there's something special there. You can bring it to a party, give it as a gift. And there's a, an incredible story behind it. So it's one of those rare brands that just has everything. You know, when we first encountered Josh, it was 10,000 cases. Yeah. But within its small microcosm of where it was doing business, the turns were incredible. The velocity was already incredible. I always like to say there's probably not a brand that's more authentic than Josh Jay in the premium space. And why is it so big? It's because we didn't mess with the original formula. We, we didn't try to get clever. We were just stewards of the magic that was already there. And, and once in a while, a magical brand like Josh is going to come along. Yeah. And, that, and that's always the, the pleasant surprise of the business, right? Maybe that's the unicorn that entrepreneurs see and say, hey, Josh was 10,000 cases. I'm 10,000 cases. Maybe there's opportunity for me if Deutsch gets behind me or Pernod Ricard or uh, Constellation or, you know, Beam Centauri, whatever. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating. That's one of the I think um, if you're talking about folks who are looking for uh, insight into the M and A process, if they're uh, a small entrepreneur trying to get their start, yeah. it's not just muscle. Muscle is not going to do it alone. You've got the largest wine company in the world who is churning out thirty brands every five years. Who is who? Who is that? Gallo. Gallo, okay. I think at least 30. How many yeah. of those do you think get to a hundred, a million dollars or more? Probably 0.5%. I mean, look, it's the same thing like Kellogg's. Kellogg's has a thousand cereals, but all we know is Raisin Bran, you know? Exactly. Or, or, it really is interesting to me. You know, the, the customer will choose, the audience will choose what will explode and what won't. Look, I just read an article today about Dwayne Johnson's tequila, which is all the buzz now. There were 300,000 cases in their first year. I have never seen a launch like that. And I'm, I've been selling booze. I sold over a billion and a half, or $1.5 billion in liquor in my life, in my career. I've never seen anything launch like that. And that's, by the way, as an aside, when you talk about The Rock, that's more sales in aviation, gin. That's more sales in Casa Amigos, uh, tequila, George Clooney's uh, thing. And that will be a unicorn. That will get picked up by someone for multiple billion dollars or a billion in cash and a billion on the com or whatever it is. But that's a launch like we've never seen. And I don't know if that would have happened pre-pandemic 
pre-equity markets loosening up, pre-celebrity brands. I mean, how do you feel about, about you know, celebrity brands as an example and, and their power? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the pandemic. I think if there's one thing that the pandemic really shone a light on, it's the power of consumer brands, right? The, the pandemic is a story of haves and have-nots. You have a, an entire industry that is growing more than it was before the crisis, but it's really the big brands that are benefiting the most, exponentially relative to the smaller brands. And, and the key reason why that is, is it's because they're consumer-driven, now, compound on top of that, the fact that the pandemic has shut down the on-premise channel yeah. and a lot of the traditional brand building tactics, strategies that companies follow, you really are left with a situation where the consumer is king and consumer communication becomes so much more important. So back to the rock, I mean, just think about the compounding effect of fewer brand building levers, focus on the consumer, and this guy has a 2 million follower megaphone. Yeah. Which, yeah. by the way, he's been posting about his tequila for the last two years. Yeah. He, he, a lot of, there, was, there was the man before supply, which is a huge key. And, you know, it's funny that you say that because when brands come to Bevstrat, for instance, I, I always say to them that the consumer and the retailer want their brand. Because distributors have had only half the market open, the retailers have been seeing crazy deals from distributors. Uh, because distributors need to hit their numbers. And so a lot, and those only come on staple brands, you know, the 500 that account for the majority of the skew velocity. So distributors are pushing down commoditized brands, staple brands at deep discounts because they need to hit, they needed to hit end of year 2020 numbers. So their stores are littered with 100K stacks of Tito's and Jack and Jim and KJ and Josh and all these different things. So these little brands, which provide great margin for the retailer, right? They're not price sensitive. Everyone knows Tito's should be $14 or $14.99 and the retailer buys it for $13.40. The retailer uses it to get the consumer in the joint. The little brands, the brands we represent or the brands that the, at the 50,000 that aren't represented are out there, those are the ones the retailer needs and the retailer is blinded by the Rocks tequila. And don't forget what, the person making money in the rocks skew velocity is the rock and the distributor, <laughs> right? But no, but the, the retailers aren't because as, as more, as more retailers carry the brand, there's downward pressure on pricing because it becomes competitive. If you're the one retailer carrying the brand, then there's price inelasticity. When a hundred retailers within one mile are carrying the same thing, it's the lowest price wins because by nature of our business, Brands are commodities, and the only thing that's different about them is where you buy them, the level of service, and the price. If service doesn't matter to you, then cost goes your jam. If service is mad, does matter to you, then Stu Leonard's is your place. I definitely see some of that. I'd like to think that Terramana is not yet there. They're only at 300,000 cases. There's still some margin for everybody in the pool. But it's funny, you, even for a brand like Josh, I, I would like to think that through the pandemic, the increased volume actually made up for whatever um, shortening of margins happened because of assortment, right? And, and I think the numbers will bear that out. The interesting thing in all this is the, the one refrain that you'll hear from both distributors and 
uh, retailers, despite this, call it margin compression because people are gravitating to larger brands, is they're probably going to rationalize their assortments. Yeah, the rebalance. Probably, right? Because the bigger brands will need more inventory space and they're finding out that they can still be net more, more profitable yeah. uh, with a tighter assortment. So, does so the it's interesting. Does the pandemic kill the little brand? I think the pandemic makes it very difficult for the little brand. There's still there's still going to be special gems out there that will always succeed, especially in wine. If you think about consumers' thirst for treasure hunting and discovery, you know these are beautiful things that will never go away. I think they'll temporarily go away during this pandemic, but eventually those behaviors will come back. I do think, though, that between now and wherever that return is going to be, whenever that return is going to be, uh, it'll be tough for these smaller guys. Interesting. But, you know, it's, it, what, what, doctor, it only hurts when I hit my, my head with a hammer. You know, don't hit your head with a hammer. But these little guys are gonna, going to continue to create. And, you know, when I look, and it, it's so funny because the, the retailers, the consumers, they want breadth of selection, but they want price. And so how do you get everything you want at the price you want, at the retailer you want? That's where the impossibility comes in. Right. What do you think? Renato, what do you think in 2021? So let's let's run it out, right? You have the vaccine is coming. On-premise is opening back up. At least I'm in Chicago today. You're on the East Coast. Florida never closed because it's Florida. And what do you think, like 2021, is it going to be further cramming of commoditized brands? Or is it going to be, We I happen to think, and I preach this through all my channels, is it's going to be like the great Gatsby. It's going to be like the revival, like roaring 20s. It's going to be party every night, drink whatever we can. Let's go out there and celebrate our life because we've been in our home where you and I both are today since March of 2020. And now we're coming up on March of 2021. So do you feel, or you personally, or is Deutsch's position that we're about to go rocket ship up or we're going to maintain or what, how do you think 2021 is going to look? Uh, look, I, I, I'd like to be optimistic. You've seen some forecasts there that there's going to be a lot of pent-up demand, especially for our fellow partners in the on-premise. I do hope that there is a resurgence, that people are going to want to go back outdoors, want to go back and eat outside, and, and really help prop up that on-premise industry who's been hurting. We're making a bet on the on-premise. We, we think Got it's it. here to stay. We're not going to take the eye off the ball there, and we're going to do everything we can to support even as a lot of companies are going to take their foot off the pedal. And, you know, there is going to be some of that. You have to be practical, right? With, with, with so many closures, you do have to be practical in your approach. But we still think it's going to be an important and vital part of what the future looks like. Got it. So we're coming up towards our, our Dino May, if you will, our, our finish line. We would play a little game here, which I like to, it's called drink or not tonight. Okay. okay. All right. Um, where I, where it, the, the basic premise of the game is, you know, drink is like, yeah, seems like a good plan thing. Not tonight means pass. I'll give you categories. You tell me drink, not tonight. RTDs. Drink. Drink. So and now RTDs in cans or boxes? Cans. Cans. So you're saying that drinking, you think that's a, that's a trend to stay? I do. Non-alc. Not tonight. Not tonight. So we've got... That's As opposed to low elk. So low elk is what? Under 1%? Just lower than what your normal strength is. 
Okay. So um, we have a lot of listeners that are non are, are advocates of non-alc. They're they're thinking that you can do a, a drink, a full, like I've got a, a whiskey brand that is 0.5 and it's still considered non-alc. And they're mixing, they're, they're way they're telling their story is one full, take a full glass of alc bourbon a full and drink it. And then your next glass is non-alc bourbon. It spreads your night out. It lowers your cost and you feel much better the next day. Drink or not, drink or not tonight. Still. Not tonight. Not tonight. Okay. This is my personal opinion. Look, uh, in my job, I have learned to put my personal opinion to the side. I'll look at anything, but I look yeah. at the numbers, right? You got to look at uh, whether or not it's really turning. Does it really meet a consumer need? Um, so I'll look at everything. I, I know that I might have a blind spot to it. I know there are a lot of people out there who are preaching moderation and that it's an important benefit to many people. I just don't think it's commercial yet. I, I don't think it's broad yet. Yeah, broad, broad is the key. I mean, the question is how many people people what what's the delta between people drinking non-alc or just not drinking that night right yeah i'd rather have a a sprite than a non-alc anything what do you think about rosé rosé is here to stay <laughs> but what yeah. but but so it's a drink but is it 12 months or is it only in rosé is rosé season a real thing uh, i think it still is certainly it still is um but rose i think season so may yeah. to october may to yeah. november well, it usually starts up here in the in the it starts here in the northeast in January. People start stocking up. the the first The first orders out of Provence are are, are being placed in January and makes it into stores February and March. So I, I do think that it, it, it's uh, it's still seasonal just by the very nature. But I think it'll be closer to seasonality than a white wine in a couple of years. Yeah, you know it's funny when I. There's only two, there's not many brands that are truly seasonal. Like Nouveau Beaujolais is a seasonal thing. It's like, you know, Thanksgiving to January 1st at the, at the best, Deboeuf, et cetera. When Rosé first came out, you'd see them on store shelves around April and you'd see them disappear right after Thanksgiving. We and in, in my family drink Rosé all year round. You can't get it. You can't get perhaps your great brand. I don't mean your personal brand, but the, the brand you want, you can't get it all year round unless you stock it up. Right. But we love rosé. It's light, it's easy to drink, it's hang it's the hangover factor or the next day fogs aren't there, right? Sorry, sorry. Aren't there. And um, a little bit of insight know, there. I, I like so uh, cannabis infused beverage, drink or not tonight? THC or CBD? You tell me. THC not tonight. CBD I'll drink it a week from tonight. <laughs> so it's not quite there yet but it's coming. I think CBD will be coming. Got it. Got it. Got it. And what about marijuana replacing consumption patterns on the alcohol side? Drink or not tonight? I don't see it. I, I think that they, they meet fundamentally different need states, particularly for wine. If you, if you think about the pleasure that you get from wine, it really is something that you don't get from a lot of other products, even beer or spirits. Wine accesses need states that uh, marijuana can't touch, spirits can't touch, beer can't touch. And I, I don't see it cannibalizing in the over the long term. I see people doing both. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm in that camp. I did a piece a couple of years ago for Wine Industry Advisor about pot replacing low-end drinking because there's nothing unique about a low-end anything. It serves its social purpose. A case of Miller Lite 
sorry, Tom Long, or Budweiser, I'm sorry, Brito. You know, there's nothing special about it. It serves a consumption need. So at that point, I think that category or subcategory is easily replaceable. Whereas I think when you're talking about, we'll use Josh as an example. It, there's something to Josh, right? It's flavor, it's bottle, it's stature, it's label design, it's, it's bottle heft and weight. There's a lot to it that I don't think marijuana can replace. But if it's between pinnacle vodka and uh, edible, I think those are interchangeable. Possibly. I think if you're going to see it happen, it'll probably happen at the lower end where it's really seen as a delivery mechanism. Mm-hmm. But but even then, right? E- even even these call it um, commodity price value brands at the lower end of the alcohol spectrum, they're special to somebody. They they meet a special need, the experience, the taste, whatever it might be. That I'm I'm not sure that marijuana will be able to overtake, uh, at least not in the near future. Yeah, I think it's going to be a both conversation. Yeah, look where where I am in Illinois. Marijuana is legal, and the distill the distilleries, the dispensaries, which essentially is a distillery for pot, they're packed. They're nine o'clock on Sunday morning. There are people there, and there's a line. So, and it, and it's been legal here for well over a year, right? You know that 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 will run its course, meaning that will settle into normalized behavior, and and maybe a year into legalized pot, maybe it's still exciting, but it's legal, and it's and you can't. I mean, there's a term cross-faded or what, you know, there, but there is, you, you can't do both all the time. Right? Oh, so it'll it, crush you. Yeah, it will, it, it, <laughs> it has, right? So it will, um, I guess time will tell, right? Yeah, I think time will tell. Right now, I'm still optimistic there's room for both. And, uh, you know, our, our tasty beverages, they, they do offer a unique need or offer a solution to a pretty unique need. Yeah, there's no question. Thank you for your time today. Uh, this was fun. Yeah, it was a good. It was good to hear some of your musings on the business. Deutsch, you know, uh, drink or not tonight is always a fun game. And for our listeners, it's important. I feel to know that where you sit is a combination of a fan of the industry, a financier of the industry, and a little bit of a prognosticator, right? Because you bet real money on brands and you've got brands interests at heart and I think that really matters for people to know who you are and know what you do because it's not just make a brand and sell it there's a lot of layers there yeah and I appreciate the opportunity too uh you know so much of this is there are a lot of folks out there I think who could benefit from partnership and this is one way for me to, to get Deutsch out there as a potential partner to some aspiring entrepreneurs who are interested in finding a family company, who are experts in partnership, who are willing to do joint ventures, who are willing to do agency relationships. My counsel to these folks who are out there trying to, to make it work day in, day out is keep the consumer top of mind. If you're really meeting a, a consumer need, don't stop believing. Keep it going forward and yeah. you should make a song like that. <laughs> I, I hear that might be a good song. You know? <laughs> um, if you if you think you've got the consumer's interest at heart there, don't stop believing and, and try to find a, a strong partner that'll help you get it off the ground. Well, listen, thank you for being on a happy hour live with Brian Rosen, which isn't an hour and it's not live. So thank you for that. I love that. 
This was fun. <laughs> it was like we were just talking on the phone. It's like a regular phone conversations. Well, we were just with a camera. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, thanks, Renato. <laughs>